Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, before we get started tonight, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll just have a few moments of silent prayer, and then, uh, then we'll start. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can get together and that each one made it here safely. We pray you watch over us, and if there are others who are out on the road or have gotten stranded, you'd watch over them, keep them safe as they're uh, negotiating the, uh, the streets tonight. Father, we pray that as we study your word, you'd help us to clarify our thinking in a difficult subject and that you would give us uh, a good insight in what your word says. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study here in on the subject of the uh, original life and transmission of the soul, which is what comes out of our study in Hebrews chapter uh, 7, verses 9 through 10, where we have the passage that talks about Levi paying tithes while he's still in the loins of Abraham. Now, we've talked about that to some degree, but the broader issue, the broader doctrine that comes behind that has to do with two issues, and that one is the origin of the soul, and the other is a transmission of of the soul. And I've gone through some things. I've been uh, refining my thought, reading some contrary literature the last week or so to just get some ideas of what some of the uh, critiques have been on this position. And it's been kind of interesting because, unfortunately, I think the way this argument has often been presented has been way overstated. And in the context of that has created some rather straw men arguments of its own. But the other side, at least in terms of a doctoral dissertation, which I just read, uh, created its own set of false assumptions and straw men arguments. And so I want to just go back over a couple of things we've done already. One thing I pointed out at the very beginning is that there are two basic two basic positions on the origin of the soul, traditionism and creationism. Traditionism teaches the view that both the material body and the immaterial soul are transmitted through physical procreation. And as I pointed out, this was first articulated by Tertullian in uh, around the uh, second, third century A.D. His dates were 155 to 220. This view was to declared heretical by Thomas Aquinas and by other Roman Catholic theologians in the Middle Ages. Now, one of the things that I have uh, come to understand a little more clearly in recent weeks is that a number of Roman Catholics take a position, or probably the vast majority, take a position that is known as conception creationism. They don't take it, that is not the official, traditionism is not the official position of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. It is the second position we're talking about here, creationism, that only the body is generated through physical generation, but the soul is directly created and imparted by God. Now, the difference is there are those that hold that the soul is, is uh, imparted at conception, others that hold that it is imparted at birth. Okay, so we have to make sure we correctly identify a number of these positions. What's what I found interesting in <clears throat> this particular dissertation is the inference was there, if not the direct statement, that the vast majority of, no, he did say, the vast majority of creationists were uh, held to creationism at conception. And he footnoted it. So I went and checked the footnotes, and they didn't say, they didn't say that either. One did, but it wasn't footnoted. It was a Bible dictionary. Now, Bible dictionaries are notorious for making uh, general, generalized statements, but there was no documentation, and in the reading that I have done over the years, I have never seen a Protestant theologian such as Calvin or Hodge or uh, Burkhoff or some of the others argue that the con- that creation of the soul was imparted at conception. It was always understood to be... Uh, to be from birth, although I have to admit, in many cases, they, they, don't, they don't state that. But that's how it was presented when I was in seminary, and I, did, I had knew, no, knew at least 
two professors that were teaching in the systematic theology department at Dallas Seminary when I was there, when I was there, who were uh, creationists, birth creationists, as opposed to conception, uh, conception creationists. So this is a, a viable position that has been held uh, down through the ages by numerous, uh, numerous uh, believers. Now the crux passage where a lot of people go, and I've spent a lot of time on this passage already, is Genesis 2-7. Just to remind you of the exegesis here, the first phrase is, has to do with uh, the verb yatsar, which generally has to do with shaping something physical. Now, when God is forming the dust of the ground, he shapes it into the physical body of, of the man. He then <clears throat> blow, breathes into his nostrils or blows into his nostrils, and that, of course, is an anthropomorphism because God doesn't breathe or have breath any more than he has a nose or eyes or ears or or fingers or anything like that. So this part of the of the verse is clearly anthropomorphic in relationship to God, that God breathing into his nostrils, the his nostrils refers of course to the nostrils in the uh, body that God has just shaped for the man and that is literal. That's not anthropomorphic. So that is that is literal. And then uh, <clears throat> he breathes in the breath of life. Now, this can't be anthropomorphic because what, number one, what fills the lungs, some wind, something does fill the lung of, lungs of the body, which begins to, which imparts the life principle and generates life in the body that God has just shaped, number one. Number two, there are numerous passages in the, <clears throat> in the Old Testament where the word neshema is used referring to breath, and in numerous cases it is that which indicates life. They didn't have EKGs or EEGs, and what indicated life was breath. And so this is that which indicates the presence or absence of life is breath, and I'll show you some scriptures on that. In just a minute. And then the last phrase, which I pointed out last time, nefesh hayah. Hayah is the Hebrew uh, feminine noun, which means a living thing or an animal, that which, that which has life. And then nefesh is the word that sometimes we translate it soul, but here it's more the idea of the animating principle, and it's a compound word. And one of the things that a mistake that can be made is to go in and break these phrases down into their components because often a phrase is more than the sum of its parts. So if you break it down where you emphasize nefesh as opposed to the phrase nefesh hayah, you can end up creating, a, as I pointed out the last time, more of a platonic view of the soul which is foreign to Old Testament context and you just can't find... Uh, a lot of documentation from Hebrew scholars that would substantiate that use of nefesh here. In fact, what you have is the phrase nefesh hayah is used for the sense of something that is fully alive uh, three other times in the creation narrative. It's used of birds in Genesis 1.20. It's used of sea creatures in 1.21. It's used of animals in 1.24. So to argue that nefesh hayah here means a living soul creates a problem when this is the fourth time the phrase is used in the creation narrative and you wouldn't translate it living soul in the previous other three instances. Okay? So that, that has led some to overemphasize the immaterial dimension of man and to treat this as as more of a Greek concept of soul than a Hebrew concept of soul. Okay, now I just have some passages here which utilize the word uh, nefesh, I mean neshema, to Im indicate breath as the evidence of life. Genesis 7.22 talks about the destruction of everybody on the planet other than uh, Noah and his 
three sons and their wives, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. This is talking about everybody who was alive. Deuteronomy 26, the instructions uh, for Moses to for, for holy war to the Israelites as they're about to take the land. He says, But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. That indicates both... Um, Physical animals, as, such as uh, domestic animals, such as cattle and sheep and goats, as well as, as humans. And it's interesting when you get into this debate, what is life biblically? Because we all know that there's a certain amount of, of uh, greenies running around with a couple of screws loose who think that, that, that if they talk to their plants, that their plants are, are living beings and they'll respond to them and all this other nonsense. And the Bible doesn't use nefesh hayah of single-cell creatures or of plants. Now, one reason I make that point is because Adam and Eve were vegetarians in the garden. And so if you want to make an argument in the creation-evolution controversy, you say there was no death until Adam sinned, you're always going to get some smart aleck come along and say, well, what happened when they ate that first piece of corn? They killed it. No, it's not the same word used for life. There's, different, there's a recognition in the Hebrew narrative of different categories of life and birds and uh, fish and animals, uh, the sea creatures, these are, are breathing creatures, and that seems to be what makes them living creatures. That's a quali- quality that indicates life. So we can't push nefesh too far, and, and I haven't been doing that. I've been arguing that nefesh is, indicates that what animates the physical body is that which is immaterial. Because you see this connection through here of these words like nefesh and ruach, like you have back here in Genesis 7.22, in whom was the breath and neshema of the spirit ruach of life. These are terms for that which is breath, wind, that which is, that which is invisible. Joshua 10.4, number of these, there's a whole lot of passages in, in the conquest section in Joshua and Judges and on into Samuel that uses neshema in terms of the destruction of all that breathe, like you have in Joshua 10, 10.40, that they're to utterly destroy uh, all that breathe. Joshua 11.11, they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. In other words, this is a, Genesis 2.7 has been used, the way it's been structured and the way people, some people have presented this in such a way that that becomes a sort of a, a pattern for all other birth. And it's, it is and it isn't. It isn't in the sense that <clears throat> when God is creating the, the home, the physical home for the, uh, for the soul of Adam, it's not the same. It can't be made parallel to what's happening in the development of a baby inside the womb. There's, you know, he's, God is shaping the clay. There's no heartbeat. There's no blood flow. There's no cell life. There's no brain activity. It's not an analogy. And uh, to be honest, the, the creationist position never uses that that way. It's clearly recognized that that was an immediate creation by God, and that physical, the physical dimension of man, the material dimension, is passed on uh, <clears throat> indirectly. God is indirectly in charge. And I point out several passages where uh, the Old Testament attributes events to God as if he directly did it, when in fact he did it indirectly through human means. God saved me. Yes, but he did it indirectly through somebody who gave me, the, through my parents who gave me the gospel. But yet I still talk as it, because God, even though he is the uh, second, he, he is the ultimate agent, he wasn't, he didn't immediately save me, he indirectly or immediately saved me through uh, human instrumentality. So the Bible uses uh, very direct language for both uh, immediate and immediate involvement of God because everybody recognizes that God is the one who gives life and gives soul life, whether it is done through a tradition view. They would all say that we believe God gives a soul and creation is true. So we can't uh, misrepresent other positions just to try to make our own position look a little bit stronger.
But there is this, this reaction, this knee-jerk reaction <clears throat> that you find today because people think that a creationist position at birth automatically legitimizes abortion. So I thought, well, I would read something to you to give you a, a little uh, different perspective. And I thought, well, I just put this up here on the overhead because it's a long quote. Normally I don't like to read long quotes, but there's a couple of lengthier quotes I want to read tonight just to educate you a little bit about about this, this whole issue. This is an article from the uh, Encyclopedia of Judaism, which was published in 2000. One of the editors was Jacob Neusner, who is a very well-known uh, rabbinical scholar, uh, several others. And in this article, they write, The Jewish legal and moral attitude toward abortion, based on biblical, Talmudic, and rabbinic sources. Note that they're not dealing with modern Jewish formulations. They're going back to uh, to Mishnaic interpretation, rabbinical interpretation, Talmudic interpretation of the Bible. The Jewish legal and moral attitude toward abortion, based on these sources, including the response to literature that's <clears throat> some modern literature that's been described in detail in English by various authors, he states, in Jewish law, an unborn fetus is not considered to be a person. Now, let me just pause here. Now, that's really critical terminology because I'm going to read something by, uh, written by Harold O.J. Brown earlier, and he argues, a number of non-sequiturs, I think, in his position, that if it's human, and what, let me make an aside, another aside here, what's in the womb is human. It's not non-human. It's not something else. Uh, it, it's going to be a human being. It is, it is human. And uh, unfortunately, some people have inadvertently overstayed the case and say, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just a mass of uh, cell, biological cells. No, it's human. But he makes the supposition that it's human, therefore it's a person. person gets into a legal definition. Let me just set that aside until I come back and address it later on. So he says here, in Jewish law, an unborn fetus is not considered to be a person. That means a, a legal entity that could own property, transfer titles, uh, le- legally recognized. Says the, uh, it, the person they, in Hebrew is considered nefesh, literally soul, which is what I've been pointing out. It's not a person, it's not nefesh until it is born. The fetus is regarded as part of its mother's body and not a separate being until it begins to egress from the womb during parturition. Until 40 days after conception, the fertilized egg is considered mere fluid. Um, intentional, and, and that, you know, in, in, there was the, that, that 40 days, where does that come from? That comes back from Aristotelian thought, that at 40 days there was a quickening. What's that based on? Who knows? But that was it. Is that 40 days there was a quickening, and that when it, that's when it begins to uh, become uh, human. So that's where that 40 days comes from. Uh, until 40 days after conception, the fertilized egg is considered mere fluid. Intentional abortion is not mentioned directly in the Bible, but a case of accidental abortion is discussed in Exodus 21, 22 to 23. Now, that's the passage where it talks about, it's a part of case law, you have two people fight, two men fighting, and they they want to do each other bodily harm, but they inadvertently and accidentally hit a pregnant woman, and the pregnant woman uh, has a baby. Now, one position that that uh, some people hold is a view that that is a miscarriage and it's not a live birth, but it's recognized by most scholars that the Hebrew word that is used there uh, indicates live birth and is always used of live birth and so that's a position that must be understood there it's a live birth which means at the point of birth the the baby is alive any damage it's done is post birth so if life begins at birth then obviously you have a living baby because it's after birth okay we'll get into that in detail when we look at the exegesis of that passage so they're going to give the, the Jewish interpretation, uh, and this is only one Jewish interpretation. I have a host of other Jewish scholars who hold to the uh, live birth view, uh, and they argue that this is the concept, this is the miscarriage view. 
quote, when men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other misfortune ensues, the one responsible shall be fined as the woman's husband may exact from him the payment to be based on judge's reckoning. But if other misfortune ensues, the penalty shall be life for life. And that miscarriage view would be that if there's other misfortune to the mother. That's how they interpret that. The, the issue here is that by, by issuing a fine, they're showing that what happens is, is significant. It's not insignificant. It is not just a ma- mass of non-entity, non-human cells. They say, well, if it was, if they had even considered it to be uh, human, they wouldn't have. There would have been more than a fine. No. What's interesting is if you get into looking at the Mosaic Law, if if a Jew harms another Jew, there is a penalty. If he kills a Jew, it, a Hebrew kills a Hebrew, there's death penalty. But if he kills a slave, it's a fine. Slave was fully human, but there's a they, there's an inherent recognition of a difference in the value of the life. Very, and that that goes through a number of different laws in the Mosaic Law. The writer in this article in the encyclopedia goes on to say most biblical commentators that would be Jewish. It's a Jewish encyclopedia. Don't get confused and think these are Christians. Most biblical commentators interpret no other misfortune to mean no fatal injury to the woman following her miscarriage. In that case, the attacker pays only financial compensation for having unintentionally caused the miscarriage, no differently than if he had accidentally injured the woman elsewhere on her body. Thus, when the woman or when the mother is otherwise unharmed following trauma to her abdomen that causes the fetus to be lost, the only concern is to have the one responsible pay damages to the woman and her husband for the loss of the fetus. The major Talmudic source for abortion rulings in Judaism uh, discusses a case of danger to the mother. And this reading reads, If a woman is having difficulty in giving birth and her life is in danger, one cuts up the fetus within her womb and extracts it limb for limb because her her life takes precedence over that of the fetus. But if the greater part was already born, one may not touch it, for one may not set aside one person's life nefesh for that of another. The commentators explain that the fetus is not considered to be a nefesh or person until it has left the womb and entered the air of the world. One is therefore permitted to destroy it to save the mother's life. Once the head or greater part of the body of the infant comes out, the infant may not be harmed because it is considered as fully born, and in Judaism one may not sacrifice one life to save another. There are many other Talmudic sources which support the non-person status of the unborn fetus. In fact, during the first 40 days of conception, the Talmud considers the fertilized zygote to be nothing more than mere fluid. However, after 40 days of elapse, the fetus is deemed to have been fashioned or formed. Laws of ritual uncleanness must be observed for abortuses older than 40 days, implying that the unborn fetus, although not considered to be a living person, nefesh, still has considerable status. In fact, Jewish law allows one to desecrate the Sabbath to save the life or preserve the health of an unborn fetus so that the child may observe many Sabbaths later. The permissibility to kill the unborn fetus to save the mother's life rests upon the fact that such an embryo is not considered a person, nefesh, until it is born. Maimonides and Cairo uh, present another reason for allowing abortion or embryotomy prior to birth where the mother's life is in danger. The argument of pursuit, which understands the fetus to be pursuing the, the, the mother. Maimonides wrote, that's Rambam, that's another name for him, Thus, the discussion of insolment for all practical... Oh, Rambam states, and then I just ended it there. The point of this whole article, and goes on for another two pages, is that in Jewish thought, that because it is potential human life, that apart from any other uh, accident or any other factor, if all things being considered, what will result from what's in the womb is a human being. God is putting together a human being bit by bit. And so nobody has the right to go in and stop it. And uh, once once uh, this process has begun, and so they, you can't go in and test. You can't go in in rabbinical law. You can't test for any kind of diseases. You can't test for Down syndrome. You can't do any of these things because there's no stopping life. And that's a position because they recognize inherently that what is in the womb is the image of God. And therefore, that involves both the physical and the soul dimensions, and so you just can't mess with it. This is extremely 
uh, serious stuff. But on the other hand, as I pointed out last time, it is not deemed murder. I think that's a very important distinction to make. And I'm going to bring out something in just a minute. So we talked about that. And this just shows that the position I'm articulating, which to a lot of evangelicals just sounds really bizarre, that you don't have life until, until a birth. In fact, uh, in this next article I'm going to read to you by Harold O.J. Brown, he just says, who could ever imagine that, there, that, that the, the, the fetus could make it to, to birth without a soul? Okay, where's your evidence for this? Now, remember that. That's an important word when I read you this next article. Where's your evidence? Okay, so we talked about the fact that, that what I've shown you is that this is not a position unique to Christianity, but it is one that is also consistent with the teaching of the rabbis going back to the Mishnah, which is uh, roughly at the time of Christ, and uh, the, though the Mishnah was written and codified in the uh, 2nd and 3rd century A.D., it represents an oral history that goes back to the 2nd, 3rd, maybe 4th century uh, B.C. Now, the next question that we're addressing is the question of when does God impart the soul? How do we know this? Now, I've gone into Scripture to show that the Bible uses this, this language of from birth to death. It's interesting, one of the straw man arguments I saw in this dissertation, he just cited all these things that, that uh, creationists would argue from birth, from birth, from birth. But in all, in, in all the passages he cited, there was also the other end of the of the formula, which is from death, but he left that out and said, see, they're just basing everything on the use of a word. That was faulty argumentation. So we have to ask the question, when does God impart the soul, and how do we know the soul is there? Can you measure it? Can you weigh it? Can you see it? Is there something physical that demonstrates the presence of the soul? Now, that's a very important question. Well, in doing my research, I ran across this second article, which is, it came out in the um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, Journal. The Trinity Journal came out in Volume 14, uh, came out in 1993. And it was written by Harold O.J. Brown. Now, this is significant because Harold O.J. Brown is probably one of the top five significant Protestant theologians who pushed the whole anti-abortion movement from the inception. In fact, in the article, he tells a story. Let me see if I can find it here. He tells a story about when he, when, when Roe v. Wade first came down. He says, Unfortunately for those who consider abortion a moral evil, indeed, under most circumstances a crime, the evangelical community was very slow to react to Roe. Prominent Christian leaders such as W.A. Criswell, he was a pastor of First Baptist up in Dallas, which at the time was the largest Baptist church in the world, W.A. Criswell greeted Roe versus Wade with favor, in some cases uh, apparently to be what seemed a reflex anti-Catholicism. Question on his stand by this writer, uh, Dr. Criswell, see, Harold O.J. Brandt was of such stature, he could call up W.A. Criswell on the phone and ask him, what are you going to do about this? And he did the same thing with Billy Grant. I mean, Harold O.J. Brown is probably in his mid to late 80s now, he a, was a major figure in neo-evangelicalism in the 50s through the, through the early 90s. He says, um, uh, talks about how Billy, when they first formed one of the earlier anti-abortion movements, Billy Graham was first on the board, but then uh, he, he, he got, when he saw where it was going, he got off the board. He just doesn't, uh, didn't understand all this. And he went on to talk about the fact that it was really the writing of Whatever Happened to the Human Race by Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop that galvanized the uh, religious, uh, the evangelical community into an anti-abortion stance. And I remember going to see, they did a full uh, media film, multimedia presentation of that series in Dallas in about 1979 uh, to 80. And I remember going to that with... Uh, just like I did with How Should We Then Live with Tommy and Charlie and a bunch of other guys. And we all sat there and went through the whole thing. But that's what galvanized the action. Now, who's this guy Harold O.J. Brown? I think it's important to give you a little idea of who this guy is and what his credentials are. He is the 
uh, he held the, at the time he wrote this, he held the Franklin Foreman Chair of Christian Ethics and Theology and was a professor of biblical and systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical uh, Divinity School. He's now a professor emeritus from there. He served as a pastor in Switzerland. He uh, taught on the faculty of uh, Trinity for numerous years. He earned his four degrees. He's well-educated. He earned his four degrees from Harvard University and Harvard Divinity School. I've been to Harvard Divinity School. They didn't teach the Bible there. When I was first went there and looked at the list of courses was in about 19, maybe 1981 or 1982. And there wasn't a Christian course there. Now, they had Christian books in the, in, 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 the, uh, in the bookstore. They had some Greek and Hebrew tools in the bookstore that I bought because I hadn't seen those prices in 10 years. That's probably how long they'd been in the bookstore. But he, uh, he has a degree from Harvard University, Harvard Divinity School. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Germanic Languages and Biochem- Biochemical Sciences, the Bachelor of Divinity in Theology, the Master of Theology in Church History, and the Doctor of Philosophy in Reformation Studies. He's also studied at the University of Marburg, Germany, and the U- University of Vienna, Austria, and taught courses in Basel, Switzerland, and in India. Now, I just want you to... Be aware of those, those credentials, okay? Because of a couple of things he's going to say. Now, he makes a couple of telling comments, and I think self-damning comments that are dangerous to his position within his article. In one section of the article, uh, he, he, which, he, uh, which he entitles, The Question of the Soul, unanswered or irrelevant. He recognizes that it, it, per, for some people it's important to know when ensoulment takes place. Now you would think that he would have made that decision, that if he is this hardcore, frontline, ant, evangelical anti-abortionist, that he would have understood that, that issue. So he makes, uh, I'm just going to read some spot paragraphs here. He writes in one place, he says, It's interesting that some of the medical and legal discussion about abortion is now turning to speculation concerning the time of ensoulment. That's in the medical and legal community. Because there's, he's seeing that there's recognition that if we're going to take the life of the fetus, we have to decide when, when a soul gets there. Of course, if they're materialists and Darwinists, they can't really talk about a soul. So he's recognizing this is a, a, a problem for their position. He says that this discussion is now turning to the time of ensoulment, even though neither academic medicine nor law has hitherto had much to say about the nature of the human soul or even whether such a thing as a soul actually exists. He goes on to say it's precisely because ensoulment on the one hand, from the purely scientific point of view, cannot be brought into the relationship with life or vivification, however defined, but on the other hand, is precisely associated in folk thought. See, it's the popular people that are concerned about when the soul gets there. Uh, but he, what he's pointing out here was something I didn't realize, is that the whole pro-abortion argument has developed completely, completely apart from any discussion of ensoulment. has nothing to do with that. That never enters into their, the discussion uh, behind it. He says, on the other hand, it's precisely associated folk thought, popular culture with quickening and thus with life that the concept of ensoulment is creeping back into the discussion despite its self-evident religious or theological nature. Now, here's the point. He recognizes here that uh, the question, when does a soul get there, is one that is theological or religious in nature. He goes on to say, in order to bring the question of ensoulment into the picture when discussing the morality of abortion, the present factual situation must be studiously ignored, according to him. Factually, the government is not prepared to take the question of the presence or absence of the human soul into account. Why not? They don't have an epistemological basis to do it. And he later recognizes that we don't want the government trying to decide when the soul gets there. He goes on to say, indeed, it is neither prepared nor equipped so much as to consider whether such a thing as a human soul exists. Thus, the discussion of ensoulment for all practical purposes is necessarily confined to those religious circles, especially but not only Christian ones, who do believe that man has a soul. 
If it were possible to argue that for a certain time during gestation, the fetus is without a human soul, this would have only limited bearing on abortion law and abortion practice in the United States. See, that's what he's recognizing. Even if we could prove when the soul got there, it wouldn't have any relevance on the legal decision because the the courts didn't care when the soul got there. That wasn't a factor. Let me go on to say, um, there's not... Uh, he says, and he says, because however one understands ensoulment, he says, it is not possible to assume that the fetus remains without a soul until live birth. What an assumption he's made. See, he, he's front-loaded this with his own soul. He says, I can't even imagine that, that, that a fetus would make it to live birth without a soul. How, nobody would do this. He says, a few, very few evangelical thinkers have proposed uh, that the baby becomes a living person only when its first breath uh, takes its first breath based on Genesis 2-7. The problem is he gives no substantiation for that. He just can't imagine it, so he generates it from his own arrogance. Then he goes on to say in a separate paragraph uh, several pages later, he says, the question of insolment cannot be answered scripturally. Hello? Here's this guy with all these degrees... Master of Theology, Ph.D., gone to Harvard, Harvard Divinity School, gone to a lot of conservative schools, teaches at conservative schools, conservative to the core, and he says, the Bible can't tell you when the soul gets there. After he's made a critique of both creationism and traditionism, his conclusion is the Bible can't tell you when insolma gets there. So my question for him is, then, why are you saying it's a full human life at conception? You don't know when the soul's there. Maybe the soul's not there. How do you know? He says the Bible can't tell him. So the question of insolment, he says, cannot be answered scripturally as the scripture makes no reference to the process at all. But even if we could answer it, naming in contrast to the prevailing views a late point in pregnancy, our answer would not be relevant to the current legal discussion inasmuch as it would move on a theological plane and deal with issues of which the legislatures and courts are supposed to take notice. Thus, the only possible value of the discussion lies in the fragile support it may give to those Christians and others who believe in the soul in the effort to convince themselves that our government and much of the medical profession have not embraced the method in which killing represents a solution. Okay, what's he saying? Point number one. He is saying that whatever is in the womb is human. This is true. This has to be admitted. It's not just a mass of cells. It's not a tumor. It's not a hangnail. You know, given the the normal progress, this is how God is forming the home for a soul, for a human being. It is part of the image of God. Two, he says, Scripture cannot answer the question as to the timing of insolment. This is completely false. Somebody just came in the back door. Oh, that was the wind. Sorry, Joe, I not scare anybody. <laughs> Scripture cannot answer he, the question as to the timing of insolment, he claims. That's false. Third, he says, we do not want the government or the courts attempting to decide the time of insolment apart from revelation. Did you hear that? He's, he's absolutely right. We don't want the government coming in and determining when the soul's there because the soul can only be determined on the basis of he would say theological or religious basis, I would say you can only know it from revelation. You can't know it from empiricism, rationalism, or mysticism. You can only know it from revelation. So, my fourth point is that only Christians have access to revelation. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Okay, that's a key linchpin in my argument is you can't base law for believers and unbelievers on that which is not knowable apart from their system of epistemology. You can't hold unbelievers accountable for knowledge that is only available through revelation. Only Christians have access to revelation, so point five, Christians don't agree as to the time of insolment. There's no clarity there over the history of Christianity. There is no clarity. Now, I think I have my position. I think it's pretty clear. But over the scope of Christianity, there are uh, two views, and uh, Christians don't agree. So are we going to base federal legal statute 
on a on on information that's only available through divine revelation, only knowable to born again believers, and born again believers can't agree as to what it means. Therefore, my conclusion is that this shouldn't be an issue of federal law or courts. It's in my view. Since you don't have full human life. Now, that word full is very important the way I'm articulating this position because what is in the womb is potential and progressively developing uh, human life. It is the physical, material body part of it, but they both work, work together that it's not murder. It, it, to, to have abortion on demand or abortion at will, to use abortion for birth control, is tantamount to interfering in a divine process. Now, I'm going to deal with some other passages of Scripture in there, but that would make it immoral and sinful, but not a matter of federal constitution. That's that's my, my point. Okay, now I want to come back and deal with some problem passages over the next couple of weeks. First problem passage that was raised to me is in Job three three. So turn your Bible to Job three three. It's very important to look at the whole context here in Job three. Job 3.3 says, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. Now, the argument that is set forth here is, see, life begins at conception. We never said nothing begins at conception. We said something did, something human begins at conception. But what we're saying is the soul isn't present until birth. But this passage is set forth to say, see, uh, you have a parallelism here, and in that second half of the verse, uh, the, a male child is conceived. See, it's, it's, it's full human life. Well, let's look at the passage. The context tells you that the issue here is primarily birth, all through this section of Job. Job is bemoaning the fact that he was ever born. After this, Job, Job opened his mouth in verse 1 and cursed his day, literally in the Hebrew. Cursed his day. That is the Hebrew figure of speech for his birthday. And so he is cursing his birthday, not his day of conception. Uh, the second thing we should note is that, that this extends throughout the whole... That's the topical sentence. It's narrative. The poetry begins in verse 3. So the narrative says, at this point, Job opens his mouth, begins to curse his birthday, and Job spoke and said, and verse 3 is the first thing he says, May the day perish on which I was born. Okay, May the day perish uh, on which I was born, and that is the Hebrew verb yalad, meaning to birth. It is not... Conception. We may might as well hunker down here with the way the rain's going. We got 40 days and 40 nights. We can just go for a long Bible class tonight. I don't think we're going anywhere, and I don't think uh, Ann Wright made it in with the cake tonight. So there's nothing, uh, nothing good to go back there to eat. So in the first stanza, he says, May the day perish on which I was born, Yalad. Uh, then in the second clause he said, and the night on which it was said, a male child is conceived. Now, a, ma- a male child has to do with the properties of the physical body, not the presence of the soul. And that's all we're, what we're arguing, is that there are two developments that take place in the tra- in, in, in the development of a human being. The first has to do with the development of the body, and the second is the uh, giving of the soul. And all this second stanza says is that a male child was conceived. Now, there are people who come along and say, well, 
when you look at some of these passages, like if you skip down to verse 11, I don't think I have a slide on it, but if you look at verse 11, uh, Job says, Why did I, I not die at birth? And why did I not perish when I came forth from the womb? And there's the argument that because the first person singular pronoun is used there, that he was present there. Well, we have the same kind of thing. Just hold your place there and turn over Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Verse 13. David says, For you formed my inward parts. They're not somebody else's. My soul wasn't there yet, but those, those were mine in my mother's womb. They weren't somebody else's. So how else would you articulate it? You, More hail coming down. Are we having fun yet? For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. See, he says, me, I was in my mother's womb. Well, yes, he was, but the, who else was it? It wasn't, so, what, you, your body wasn't in there. So this is, there's no really other way to articulate this in, um, in English. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. All this is just using a first person uh, pronoun to refer to that which is his body. Well, I hope that's not, hope we all have insurance to cover our, uh, cover the hail damage being done to our cars out there. The point is, if you look at the context of Job chapter 3, I wonder if they can hear all that storm through the microphone. It's almost, almost that loud. Okay, he goes on to say, may, may the day perish on which I was born, the night in which it was conceived, a male child is conceived, which was said a male, male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. goes on to say, as for that night, my darkness sees it, but may it not rejoice among the days of the year. And then we get down to some more specifics in verse 11. He says, uh, why, uh, verse 10 rather, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. In other words, my mother's womb wasn't shut. It was the birth. See, this whole passage is talking about the birth of, uh, of Job. Why did I not die at birth? And we've looked at the terminology here, me reckon and me betten. Now, one of the things that was pointed out in this dissertation, which I thought did a, did a decent job at this and, and, and a corrective in some sense, is that, as I pointed out before, when you have certain words and components of words, that sometimes you do yourself more damage by breaking down the particulars and the, the components than recognizing that the phrase or the clause or the whole saying has meaning in and of itself that is beyond the sum of its parts. So if you spend too much time trying to make a case for the preposition men or ek, meaning out from, uh, as opposed to... Uh, See, I could use a preposition ek or men and say, I'm going to pour this, this coffee out of, out of this cup. Now, it has presence inside the cup, and it comes from the source of the cup, and it comes out. But you have other passages, as we saw in Scripture, if you try to take that meaning, and that's a legitimate meaning for men or for ek, if you take that meaning and make that cover every use of men or ek, you've got a real problem when you come to Revelation 3.10, when God promises that he's going to keep, uh, keep them out of the tribulation, keep you out of the... I forget the terminology there. Let me go back and look at it real quick. Um, because that's that same, same prepos- type of prepositional uh, construction, Revelation 3.10, because you... Uh, where Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world. That means you're not going to go into the trial at all. And there are parallels to that. So you can go either way. So if you press the preposition too far, you can, you can create, a, create a problem. 
But what I did in this one dissertation, as I kept reading it, I was chuckling to myself, because the writer is a dispensational uh, pre-trib writer, and yet he went so far without paying attention to the fact that there's an echo over there in Revelation 3.10. He went so far in arguing that men and ek must always be source that he moved himself right into a post-trib position without realizing it. So you have to understand and keep in mind all these different uses. And they're not hard and fast. Language isn't mechanical like that. What is important, as I pointed out the last time, is that the use of mirekum and mibetan and echoilea in the New Testament are idioms for from birth. And that's how they're translated. As I pointed out, numerous translations, NIV, NASB, uh, New, uh, New English Bible, uh, the, New, the New English Version, all of these recognize in numerous places that the, this is an idiom that should be translated from birth. And don't try to parse it into some kind of uh, separation from birth or things like that. It just means from birth. It's not separation out from the womb. It is just an idiom for birth as opposed to conception because in the Hebrew language they didn't have a noun for birth. So the only way to make the statement from birth was to use a circumlocution. But they did have a noun, as I pointed out the last few lessons, they did have a noun for conception, and so that was available to them. But when they do talk about conception, they talk about two acts that Eve conceived and gave birth. These are two different events. They're not viewed at the same. There's the beginning of the process, which develops the physical uh, home for the soul, and then there is the the actual birth itself. So Job 3.13 is not a passage that would argue for uh, conception being a starting point uh, where the soul is. There's no evidence that the soul is there at conception, only uh, physical masculinity. But throughout the whole passage, the argument is that birth, and it's birth and death are the parameters that are given there. Well, it's about 9 o'clock, Sounds like it's lightened up out there. So I'm going to close in prayer and we can all make a mad dash for our cars. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Help us to clearly think through the scripture to be able to properly understand these important issues. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Watch out for high water. Yeah, watch out for high water. That's right. <laughs>